again. Now, I was told that I'm not going to walk, that I should invest in a wheelchair, which of course we did. And then a friend of mine came to visit me one day at hospital and she said to me, you should use this experience and write everything down and maybe you could help other people in the process. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today fits the picture that I needed. He represents two different countries. I always make it a point that I have somebody local from Cyprus where I live, and I never had anybody from South Africa so far on my show. So he is both, and he is a lot more than that. He is an award-winning screenwriter, an author, he's a filmmaker, a writer, he is a TV show host, and a news correspondent. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Paul Lambis. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Wonderful platform and congratulations. I think it's it's connecting people and you're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's what I love to do. And I think that's what we need to do because connecting people removes racism, removes many, many things in this world. Because once we understand that we don't have to fear each other, things would be a lot, a lot easier. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. So, Paul, you grew up in South Africa. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. I was born in South Africa way back in 1974. So you could say there's a significant attachment to that specific year, given that obviously Cyprus um, experienced the invasion in 1974. So I was born and raised in Johannesburg. Both my parents are of Cypriot descent. I think you could say that I'm first generation from my dad's side and second generation from my mom's side. And uh, it was wonderful growing up in a country at the time where, okay, obviously we were oblivious to what was going on, for example, the apartheid regime and all that. But um, it was wonderful growing up at a time when South Africa, I think, was at its most vibrant, if I can say it in a non-racist form of way. Um, Very dynamic country, beautiful country. And as a youngster, oblivious to what was going on, we just thought it was utopia. Well, I think that's the good thing about being young, isn't it? I think, uh, especially when you're a kid, you you should have, you should be in utopia because reality yeah. hits you early enough, doesn't it? And then you find out what, what really goes on. Now, what is your earliest childhood travel memory? When were you on a flight the first time? Okay, the first time I can recall was in 1981 when... Um, it was it was literally seven years <laughs> into my existence on this planet when uh, the family decided to embark on a wonderful trip to Athens and then obviously to Cyprus. At the time, obviously, we would use Olympic Airways, which was around um, servicing all the Greeks uh, in South Africa. And we traveled to Athens. We got family in Athens as well. And then we came to Cyprus and... Um, My most vivid and fondest memories are of Cyprus in 1981, playing in the streets of Limassol with my cousin, who happens to be the Deputy Minister of Shipping at the moment. Um, And we were playing football or soccer on the streets of Limassol, having a wonderful time. And I just remember how carefree those moments were and uh, very family-oriented, beautiful moments, which I would love to get into a time capsule and revisit those at some stage. I came to Cyprus the first time. I was sent here by my tour operator. I was a tour guide. I came the first time in 1982. And uh, a year after. 
Yeah, and I lived in Limassol, and I mean, it was just so different. And the eighties for tourism, because I was visiting hotels, and I was, it was just so beautiful. You know, this famous Cyprus hospitality was alive and kicking in those years. So, Elizabeth, I was fortunate enough to um, basically experience the best of both worlds because. Having grown up in Johannesburg, which was a concrete jungle and, um, you know, the normal rat race to get to work, to get to school. Um, and then that contrast of the authentic island life, the Cypriot hospitality, which I think in, in the 80s was at its fall. Um, it was absolutely wonderful to experience that. And there's something about it. I don't know what it is. There's something about this island that no matter where you go, no matter where you travel, the minute the pilot announces that you're about to land in Larnaca or Bafos, respectively, you just feel that sense of connection, you know, that, you, you know, that this is home. And I absolutely love that. And I can't explain that, you know, somebody has to experience that to understand what it's like to live in Cyprus. So, yes, I mean, Johannesburg was, was a wonderful place to grow up, obviously, in later life. In later years, it became a little bit uh, challenging. But yes, uh, my, my fondest memories were growing up on the streets of Limassol. I think that's wonderful. And I so agree with you with um, knowing when you were arriving in Cyprus and I, because I have been here for many, many years. I think it's also the smell when you leave Larnaca Airport, especially when you arrive a little later in the afternoon or in the evening. In the old days, we used to drive through Larnaca to, to get away from the airport. Now it's just a highway. Now it's all different. And I think it's all those souvlaki stands. You smell, you smell the grill. <laughs> and that's when, you know, now I'm home. But I have somehow I have noticed because I was a tour guide and I've traveled to many, many countries. Every country has a smell. There is a special it smell. And, and Cyprus definitely has this, uh, this. Tell me, did you speak Greek at home in when you were when you lived? Yes. Uh -huh. I, that's why I'm saying I'm part first generation from my dad's side and second generation from my mom. But they chose to speak to us in Greek and only Greek, because they knew at some stage we'd be educated at an English-speaking school, and obviously we would pick up the language there. So at home, we spoke Greek, and at school in English, and then if that wasn't enough, they insisted on Greek schools, so we had to follow all the um, the traditions, the customs. We ran from um, our private English schools to uh, Greek uh, schools, to Greek dancing, to catechism classes. So we we had we experienced again the best of both worlds within South Africa. But I remember that we were always proud of our heritage, whether it was South African, whether it was um, uh, Cypriot there was still this connection to both. And that's why it made it very difficult leaving South Africa, um, which we can, we'll get to it's a, you know, a little bit later on in our conversation. I think this having to learn Greek and having to go to Greek school and this, at the time when you have to do it, you don't really, you're not so keen on it, but you really, really appreciate it later on. And uh, then you, you grow up speaking both languages. Listen, just give me one minute. I have to cough. That has to be cut out as well. Um, because... My experience, I am from Switzerland and I only spoke to my children in German and I forced them to go to German class and they hated it at the time. But they were both, and today they are both very grateful because they both studied in Switzerland. So it was a huge advantage to speak the language. And I know exactly where you come from when you say that sometimes you were not, probably not very keen on the, learning the Greek alphabet. I think it's also up to the individual. I mean, when I was at, um, you know, when I was attending classes at my English school, we were very proud to be Greek. 
And then when we were at Greek school, we were very proud to be South African. Um, <laughs> but there, there was something about it that, um, you know, the way I see it, if you enforce it on someone, um, they might end up hating it. So I think we were aware of our Greek culture. We were aware of the heritage, the customs, the traditions. They were very accessible. They were all around us, in you know, within the home and within our family circle and our extended friends, etc. So you either embrace it or you don't. Luckily and thankfully, I was one of those individuals that was extremely patriotic, proud of my culture, and I embraced it wholeheartedly. Um, yet I, I get where you're coming from. There's a lot of uh, friends and family that because it was forced onto them, they ended up resenting it. So I think it's it's very much, you could even say, almost like enforcing a religious belief or a belief on somebody. It's rather, I, I feel it's important to let someone be let them figure it out on their own and let them formulate their own beliefs and their own ideals over something. But when it comes to culture, yes. And funnily enough, we came to Cyprus and um, one of my objectives, or my main aims was because, you know, being Greek, a novelty in South Africa, I thought seeing as well we're coming to Cyprus and Greek is easily accessible and it's all around us, I'm going to make sure that my son grows up in a, Greek environment with his friends. So we did the exact opposite. We spoke English at home. And sometimes Afrikaans, when we didn't want him to hear what we were saying or understand what we were saying. So we did the exact opposite and we we, we didn't enforce it, but he grew up loving it. And uh, now he's working in the UK and he keeps phoning us every day and he says, I miss Cyprus and I miss the culture. So I think then I've succeeded at something. <laughs> <laughs> if that's you want to look wonderful. at it that way. That's wonderful. But I do agree with you. Um, and I think when you live in a country, learning the language also very much helps you understand the culture. It's not just learning a language. It's understanding so many things that have to do with that country and with the culture. And of course, also, it's being able to speak to people that you really want to speak to, but who, who may not speak English. And I think because I have learned, I, 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 my Greek is very good and I have learned Greek a long time ago. And it has helped me so much understand this place so much more. I agree with you. I do agree with you, Elizabeth. But the one thing which I'd say I'm fortunate enough to have grown up in South Africa, um, as we grew, you know, grew up, because obviously I went to a very British school that it was one of the Milner schools which were established by Alfred by Milner in the early or the late 1800s. Um, so it was obviously we know South Africa was under British colonial rule at some stage. And I, I grew up in a gentleman's uh, environment, which was very nice. And it taught us to respect different cultures, different cultures, different beliefs. So I was in a school that was mixed up with a lot of Germans, a lot of Austrians, a lot of Italians. Um, we used to label ourselves as the continentals. And then there were the Central Europeans. And, uh, you know, then there were the, the Eastern, the Middle Easterners. Or that, you know, we, 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 it, was, it was fun growing up in this diverse um, uh, system that taught us to respect everybody and everybody else. But unfortunately, we had no black students at the school because obviously South Africa was under apartheid. And, um, it, you know, it was very difficult trying to learn because we were. it was compulsory for us to learn an African language. 
which um, I chose Zulu. Um, as you know, South Africa's got 11 official languages. But I chose, um, obviously, to, to study Zulu. Uh, but we never had anybody else in the class that we could exchange that dialogue on a daily basis so that we could improve our, our, you know, our, our language skills. Uh, and I remember very much it was my final year when we were given the advice by a very contemporary and modern thinking uh, teacher that said, make sure that you continue learning an African language because you're going to need it at some stage. South Africa's cho- uh, changing. and you, you must be ready to embrace the change. And uh, a few years later, it, it did change. And hopefully for the good, I know that crime was one of the negative consequences as a result and one of the factors that led me to leave South Africa. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to integrate with other communities, especially the African communities, even for a brief period of time. You just reminded me, and I just said before that you are the first person from South Africa, which is absolutely not true, because I had a guest on a podcast episode who is actually a Sulu princess, Princess Sama Sulu. And uh, you you may want to listen to that because she's really amazing. Tell me, did you travel? Do you know South Africa well? Did you travel in South Africa? Yes. Um, You know, South Africa, obviously, given the distance, um, obviously, we needed to Apart from our annual trips to Cyprus and Greece to connect with the family and to see how my grandparents were doing, um, we chose to travel domestically. Domestic travel and domestic tourism was a very big thing in South Africa. And obviously, given the fact that we're in the Southern Hemisphere and summer is in December, and that's when our extended holidays come as opposed to July, which happens in Cyprus in August. Uh, So we traveled internally. I remember my fondest memories were uh, going down to the coast uh, in uh, Durban, uh, which is the province of Natal, and obviously going down to Cape Town. Another thing, my, my, my uncle my grandfather's brother, was one of the um, first archbishops to be sent by Cyprus. And of course, he went through the Patriarchate of Alexandria in Egypt to establish the Greek Orthodox Church in South Africa. So he was based in Cape Town. So we had the privilege of going down to Cape Town every um, now and again every December to celebrate Christmas with him. And I remember at one stage, one, one moment that resonates the most was standing at the most southern tip of Africa and seeing two oceans merge, the Indian Ocean with the Atlantic Ocean, and this white line forming in the middle of this mass of water. And I just, to this day, it gives me, you know, goosebumps thinking about it, that, you know, what a beautiful world we live in, and the fact that travel allows us to get to one place to the other. I mean, two days ago, I was standing at the most eastern tip of Cyprus, A month ago, I was in the most western tip of Cyprus. And then a few years ago, I was in the most southern tip of Africa. So what a wonderful thing travel does. And it connects people, it connects places, and it connects cultures. And that's why I'm obsessed with culture. I think culture is one of the most fascinating things out there. And, uh, and of course, obviously, understanding people and eradicating all levels of toxicity as you go along. Because I'm very much... Positive energy, keep thinking positive, get rid of all toxicity, because if you surround yourself with people that look for the negative, they'll find the negative. And there's a lot of negativity out there, so I choose to ignore. I totally agree with you. You are definitely a man of my taste, because 
you know, what you focus on is what you find. This is a fact. And uh, if you focus on negativity, you will always find it. But what you are saying about travel, and I love traveling and this feeling of being, I have this thing about special places, like you're saying, where the where the two oceans meet or the, this, this or the highest point somewhere or looking down or, or somewhere nature. I do a birthday hike every year, which is in Akamas. I, I do the Aphrodite Trail because oh, my, my birthday is on the worst day of the year and nobody wants a party. Because, so I decided to go for the hike. And it's just beautiful to look down on the Blue Lagoon on my birthday and just be happy. Absolutely. I was fortunate enough recently, Elizabeth, to film a documentary for Buffalo's Tourism. And uh, I had the opportunity of visiting um, the most western tip of Cyprus. And just looking down, it's amazing how there are certain locations, because I know I'm crazy and I'm jumping around, but I love attaching emotion to things. I think uh, that's the most important thing when you attach a feeling or whether it's negative or positive, that helps you along the way. And standing and looking down at the Blue Lagoon there at the Akamas and just, you know, being lost with nature, becoming one with nature and realizing how fortunate we are to live in Cyprus and to embrace this natural beauty. I don't think there's anything other beyond that. I know I'm being a bit racist and and I'm thinking that, you know, it's my country and that's it, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And so do I. And I am not from Cyprus, but I have really, really, really adopted Cyprus as my second home, even though I do mm. come from a beautiful country. Switzerland is a beautiful country and it's, you know, the same absolutely. majestic feeling sometimes when you are on top of a mountain. Let's talk a little bit about what you do, because, you know, we, we, we have so much to speak about. Uh, what did you study? When did you decide to become all the things that you are? Did you study... Uh, um, filmmaking or did you did that happen later it happened later um i studied um in south africa they have a thing called an aptitude test so when you when you're nearing the end of your scholastic educational career they um you know you've got all these universities which come through and they give you these aptitude tests which form a guideline as to what career you should obviously pursue. Uh, one of the of predominantly filmmaking and journalism and writing, um, you know, came to the fore. But at a time when you influenced, and this is, you know, I, I keep blaming my father for this, you know, when you're living in a, 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 the ideals were a little bit sexist at the time that a man should pursue a career that brings, you know, food to the table and provides for his family. And that woman should have a career, but only as a basis um, because family life is the, is the way it's been mapped out for you. And the thing is when we were growing up at a, in a generation where it was basically, especially in South Africa, you have to study, pursue a career. The men need to go and work and then obviously settle down. And the women need to have a career as a stepping stone, but they have to be homemakers, which, of course, I totally disagree. And um, my aptitude test uh, suggested that I pursue a career in acting, in theatre, um, in costume design for theatre, because I'm very artistic. But I opted for graphic design. I studied graphic design. Um, I qualified as a graphic designer. And one of the courses that was offered um, when I furthered my career in, in all my studies was an evening class on journalism, theatre. 
So I combined a lot of those at the same time. And I remember my final year, I had no time to breathe. I was just doing a condensed course in drama, in journalism, in filmmaking, in script writing, and writing as well. And then obviously when I when I qualified, the first thing I did was get a job at an advertising agency. And simultaneously, I was working at the South African Broadcasting Corporation where I was designing sets. But I just wanted to get my foot in the door so that I could be around the media industry. And the one thing led to another. And then I was offered a post being a graphic designer to design for one of the, the national papers and working in the media, obviously, but as a designer, gave me the exposure and the context that I needed. And then I landed up um, working at the Greek radio station where I would broadcast a daily show, work in the advertising department, creating adverts, but at the same time reporting news. So I was able, and I think the, the Greek radio gave me that platform to merge all three interests into one. And then it was just liftoff. We had a, a local channel there that offered me the opportunity to present a weekly uh, music show, which I jumped on board with that. I got involved a lot in production and we were organizing large-scale events, concerts, uh, beauty pageants in South Africa. And we got to a point where I was very connected with the media. I loved what I was doing. It was a beautiful time. South Africa was entering a new era. Everybody was free. Everybody was happy. But unfortunately, um, you know, crime got the best of us and we opted to leave. Prior to that, though, I can mention that I wrote my first book in South Africa, uh, which was titled The Turkish Princess, which was based on a bit of truth on an abandoned child that was, um, you know, a child that was abandoned during the invasion that happened in 1974. And obviously she was saved by a Turkish soldier who took her then to mainland Turkey and brought her up as a Muslim, but she was actually a Greek Cypriot. And the story, which I don't want to reveal too much, she grows up, but she embraces both cultures, which is, I think, one of my core beliefs. I love embracing culture and I love accepting people's cultures. And um, I think, you know what, South Africa coined the phrase the rainbow nation. But if you accept everybody's culture and South Africa, and I'm glad to see that Cyprus is becoming a diverse country of cultures, uh, I think the rainbow nation applies to everywhere you go nowadays because there's just this beautiful collection of cultures that I am so glad we are celebrating. It's very important to celebrate the October Beer Fest, the, um, you know, the Independence Day of Greece, the Independence Day of, uh, of Italy, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll also have a, a unified Cyprus soon and we could also embrace the Turkish Cypriot culture, which I absolutely adore. I so that is that sounds so beautiful. I think you're a bit of a dreamer like me, and and uh, hopefully all those dreams will come true. And embracing somebody's culture means that you share because you want to learn yes. from them. And it's especially in my it's got to do with cooking and food and finding out how they make it and trying out and finding out about all their traditions and how they get married. And and you know I have learned one thing. I have traveled to over a hundred countries in my life, but. I have learned one thing. We are all the same. We all have the same needs. We have the same fears. We have the same wishes. And I think understanding each other's culture brings us together. 
Now that book, the Turkish Princess, is that based on it on on facts? Is that something, or is that a, a fiction? It's based on it's based on a on a story on a true story of a young girl that was abandoned during the war. Um, but obviously, I turned it into a Sydney Sheldon inspired novel. Uh, <laughs> who happened to be my favorite author at the time, and I was inspired to write something. All my projects that I work on, they always have a central a heroine. I love focusing my stories on women because I, I was actually, uh, the other day I was with one of the ministers and I, and I said to him that if Cyprus was given the opportunity to be run by a female president, we'd probably resolve every single problem we have. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm just thinking, you know, out loud, but I think women use their logic when it comes to resolving issues and men use their egos. Yes. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I mean, Uh, don't get me wrong, you know, at the end of the day, you, you get good and bad in both sexes. But at the end of the day, I feel that one of the things that touched me the most, which um, I don't know if you can ask me this question about the movie that I'm working on at the moment, which is based on the 1974 invasion of Cyprus, the, the stories of the woman are the most interesting stories because men will always tell you and paint this butch macho figure Of themselves, uh, whereas women will, you know, they 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 hold on to the intimate details. Um, sometimes they don't share those details, but they are actual steel magnolias. They are, they stand strong, you know, irrespective of what they've been through, and they persevere. And I think this is what I like when I see person. It doesn't necessarily have to be a woman or a man or anybody that's trial, you know, gender free. But at the end of the day, I admire those characteristics in people that stand up for what they believe in and persevere and fight through. And um, a lot of my books based the Turkish princess, the woman, the, the heroine of the book is one of those people that I admire. So I've painted a picture of the, the ideal person that I would see as maybe a president or maybe somebody that's advocating for something like Melina Mercuri, the return of the Parthenon marbles, or, um, you know, the woman of Cyprus that um, protested against the invasion or whatever the case may be, Evita Peron. There's a lot of women out there that are examples of what it is to be a steel magnolia, a fighter and an idol that you can look up to and inspire, you know, many people. And again, it boils down to culture because there's a lot of cultures that to this day don't allow women to progress. And there's cultures that are encouraging women to, to be at the forefront. And that's the one thing that I admire. I look at those countries that the women are, are running the show. I mean, look at Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she's what an example. Um, the president of Greece at the moment, Wonderful. Yeah. And there's more examples out there. And I, and I love that. I love, I love what's happening at the moment. Yeah. I think we're living through challenging but very, very key and pivotal times in, in the world at the moment. This is true. And women are nurturers because the problem with men often, of course, there are also women, but it's usually very often it's greed and ego. And this is what stands in their way. And I I am, I would love to see a woman being a, a president of Cyprus, but um, I'm not sure if it's going to happen soon. We're going to have to wait. 
Now there is another. Well, motion. we are halfway there. We've got a woman that's in charge of the House of Representatives. That's true. I'm quite happy. Very true. <laughs> um, there's another book that you wrote, Paul, which is called "Where Is Home," and this book is based on experience. Right. I, when I yes. when I read about yes. you and I was uh, doing my work before I spoke to you, I read about that. What what happened? Basically, um, we we relocated to Cyprus in 2002. So it was uh, it was a very difficult time for me because I had to put everything on hold. Paul Lambus that I knew in South Africa would have to take a back seat to readjust, to reestablish himself, to find his feet and figure things out in a new country. Because, you know, when you travel to Cyprus on holiday, everything is wonderful, everything's beautiful. But when you're living here, you need to find your way and, yes, attach the emotion of what you had on holiday, but it's a completely different ball game. We all know that. So I took a pause, a breather for a few years, um, and also to focus on my son and my wife, you know, living in a new country. And then in 2008, um, I was in a near-fatal accident, car accident, uh, which resulted in a pelvic break, a spinal crack, and me confined to a hospital bed for six months and another six months at home. So it was a very difficult time for me, someone that even though I've always been an overweight individual, I've been very active. I would never let my weight slow me down. But this was something that basically brought me to a standstill and I had to reassess a lot of things. I went through the emotions that everybody goes through. First of all, you question why, then you you question a lot of the other things and then there's the anger and then there's the blame game and then there's the acceptance. Of course, you revert, there's also the, self, the pity party and the self-pity that you have to go through. But this is where I'm... I, give praise and thanks to my wife who stood by me as one of those strong, determined individuals to see her husband through, you know, this, this challenging period and help him walk again. Now I was told that I'm not going to walk, that I should invest in a wheelchair, which of course we did. And then a friend of mine came to visit me one day at hospital and she said to me, you should use this experience and write everything down and maybe you could help other people in the process. So I thought, not a bad idea. And I started jotting a few things down here and there. But then I, I decided it was, you know, once I was just making notes and saying what I'm experiencing, how I'm feeling today, it became something more. It almost became like a journey where I'd have to take a step back, go back to the beginning, because obviously the way we think, the way we feel, the way we, we act, um, has a lot to do with your upbringing. So I needed to basically um, take a step back, reevaluate everything, and go right to the beginning, which is called birth. And then it became the key to recovery was just laughter, being surrounded by people and laughing and forgetting the negative and focusing on the positive, which helped the journey become nicer more, you know, it, it, it almost became an entertaining journey and a laugh out loud, uh, you know, a journey to, to recovery. Uh, yes, I haven't fully recovered since that, um, that time. I've been on and off with cortisone and a few other issues, which is another thing I keep saying is never judge a person on the chapter that you walk in on 
because everybody's got a story to tell and some are experiencing it in a particular way, whether it's coming out of the closet if they're having problems with their sexual identity or embracing a religious belief or whatever the case is, everybody is going through something. And Where Is Home was basically me reconnecting. And then I found out along the lines, well, where do I belong? Because I was getting family from South Africa calling me to see, and I felt maybe if I was in South Africa, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, but I'm in Cyprus now and I'm getting all this love and attention. So that's great. So is home in Cyprus. And then, of course, I've got this passion for the UK, which I absolutely love going to London. That's my go-to place. So where do I want to be right now and in search of happiness? And then you realize that happiness is a state of mind, irrespective of whether you're confined to a wheelchair, whether you're a prisoner in a prison cell, you, your, your thoughts can set you free. So Where is Home is a journey that takes you back into my past. It's an autobiography, a very funny autobiography, because I do believe that um, if you don't laugh at life, life will laugh at you. And that became my, my, my motto. I think having a sense of humor is the most important thing in life because life is serious. Life can be, can, it's many things, but if you can laugh about things, that already, that does half the job. And, you know, the person who told you to write down stuff in the hospital was very, very right because, you know, there is this saying, your story can be somebody else's survival guide. Many people yes. probably read this book and, uh, you know, think about how, how you probably helped lots of people with what you wrote down. You were saying before, when you were still in South Africa, you were reporting news and you still, uh, you are a news correspondent, correspondent today. Do you sometimes read news and ask yourself, what's wrong with the world? Do you sometimes read news and think, why is this happening or how can this be happening? Um Strangely enough, I asked that question yesterday. <laughs> um, you know, I was uh, I was looking at you know the weekly roundup, and I was thinking, you know, the assassination of the former Japanese uh, prime minister. Question: Why? You know, the collapse of the balconies in Buffalo again. Why? Uh, the um, Texas and the shootings. Why? And you think, do we not learn from our mistakes? And I don't think so. And, you know, there's one thing I keep saying is that, uh, you know, I used to believe that when we came to Cyprus, you know, this laid back attitude that um, we as Cypriots have adopted, uh, do we have to wait for the bad thing to happen before we implement the change? And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of areas in Cyprus that still need a lot of work. Of course, I'm an ambassador for Cyprus. When I'm in a group and I'm talking about Cyprus, you cannot fault the island. But as a person living in Cyprus, and especially partly disabled, I do find that there's a lot of challenges, not only for me, but for other people out there. And reporting the news, especially when it's negative, and it's news that is within our control, I find that inexcusable. Obviously, earthquakes and things that are beyond our control, I can understand and I can accept. But again, um, I always question why. What, what upsets me the most is that the negative news seems to resonate far more than the positive. So if you had to write there that um, Elizabeth won the Nobel Peace Prize, I don't think people would look at that. But if you had to say that Elizabeth murdered two people in cold blood, it would be 
you know, topic of discussion for the next few days. Um, so I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, the way we report news, we shouldn't just report news. We should try and implement the change and offer solutions. And I know it's very difficult as a journalist to offer your opinion because a lot of people say you shouldn't get involved. You should report it as it is and let people formulate their own, you know, uh, ideals and opinions of it. But I think being in a privileged position means that you need to act accordingly. And if you can steer or even plant a seed that will channel somebody in a different direction for the good, then I think you should take advantage of that. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think um, also, you know, showing empathy when something happens and and uh, not just report, it kind of cold-bloodedly makes a big difference as well. And I'm just looking at the time because time flies when you're having fun and we're already nearly coming towards the end. But I want to ask you another question because you're, you're a creator, you're a filmmaker, you like culture. If you had an unlimited amount of money available to create something, what would it be? What would you do? Do you have a dream? I do have dreams. Obviously, everybody has a dream. But my one thing would be to implement change. I sometimes argue when I look at all these billionaires and and I think, you know, if I had a quarter of what you've got, the amount of change that I would make. And I know that, um, you know, if some people say that you're in la-la land, but I think that if you create, if you've got enough money and you can put it to good use, and implement change, then I think that would be, you know, I think it's it's more important to, I'll give you an example. We used to um, raise funds in South Africa for a reach of a dream project, which would mean going out and buying, uh, you know, obviously donating to a specific charity, uh, especially over the Christmas period when you had a lot of children that didn't have any gifts. And uh, I was opposed to giving the money to the organization and allowing them to go and buy the gifts. The joy of seeing a smile on someone's face, that is enough for me. And if by having money, you can encourage more laughter, more smiles, and again, attach that beautiful emotion to a deed, then I'm all for that. That's beautiful. So we have to now manifest that all this money comes to you so you can implement all the changes and I will help you because I, I thank you Elizabeth being able to to as you say put this and you know sometimes it doesn't even need much to put the smile on somebody's face it doesn't even need much money yeah. sometimes it just needs a kind word or a holding a door or just doing a good thing every now and then and or a good morning yes which costs you nothing absolutely nothing <laughs> yeah and a smile and a yeah. good morning. I think on that note, I, that that's the perfect way to end this. And I want to thank you. Thank There's you. a lot more that we could talk about. I know there is. Maybe we'll do it another time. But for today, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest on Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you so much for having me on your show. And Again, congratulations with your platform. It's wonderful. It's connecting people. It's uniting people. And I think you are in a privileged position to have such a wonderful or a plethora of people around you that just absolutely adore you and, and well done for what you're doing. Excellent. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.